The passage I'm about to read for you is in, it's an excerpt from the first two chapters of what's known as wisdom literature, a book of wisdom literature, the book of Job. The book of Job is a peculiar book, and, and some literary scholars consider it the first short story that they know existed. The book of Job is roughly 2,600 years old. 2,600 years old. And it asks a question that we continue to ask today, which is why do the good suffer? Now the book of Job was meant, even when it was written, to be a mythic story. Because it begins, and you'll hear a part of it, where God and the word is Satan, or Satan, which literally means an accuser, or one's challenger in life. God and Satan have a conversation, and in effect, make a wager with each other. The writer of the book of Job assuredly understood that the listener would hear this as a mythic, imaginary explanation for why the good, in this case Job, suffer. At the end of it, we will rise again and sing a great old um, hymn entitled Precious Lord. And it was written by someone who was a church choir director who was in the midst of profound grief and suffering. So these excerpts from the book of Job. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Well, one day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like Job on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? I mean, have you not put a fence around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and the possessions he has have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now, in the next 30 or so verses, God agrees to do this. And terrible things happen to Job based on this challenge. And then the story continues. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish person would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. They met together to go and console and comfort Job. When they saw him from a distance, they did not even recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. And Job's friends sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This ends the reading from the 2,600-year-old book of Job. Will you pray with me? And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be offered humbly and faithfully 
Amen. Many of you know in the summer I offer the Ask the Pastor sermon. And this question appeared in maybe four different forms, various forms, but four times basically this summer. And I will tell you, every summer I do ask the pastor. And the questions are these. Why is there suffering? Why do the good suffer? Why does life have to feel so heavy sometimes? And someone even asked, does God care when we grieve? No doubt each of you have your own personal and perhaps painful versions of that question. But as I consider those questions, and I knew I wanted to address them more fully from the pulpit this year, in the midst of thinking about that this fall, along comes these horrible acts of senseless violence. Last week at a church in Texas, a few weeks ago at a concert in Las Vegas, or a nightclub in Orlando, or in a school in Connecticut, all horrible, senseless, violent acts. And I will tell you that right after the first of the year, I will speak from this pulpit about our moral obligation as a community of faith to not just pray, as Meredith prayed so beautifully, but to act as well. But as I thought of all those questions, why is there suffering in the world? And the response is, I don't know. But here's what I do know. The author of the book of Job didn't know either. That's why, I think, there is created a conversation between God and Satan, or the accuser, the challenger in life, to explain that it was, well, maybe even a wager of God to test us. But I don't believe that. And I think the author of the book of Job just needed to come up with some kind of an explanation for why maybe there was a person named Job who was good and righteous and wonderful to the community and suffered horribly. But there are no right answers to the question, why is there suffering? But these are things that I'm going to respond to that you have heard from this pulpit before, once from Meredith, from me a couple of times. So there are no right answers to why they're suffering, but you know there are wrong things to say to those who are grieving. Pastor Catherine and I just concluded a grief group, and there will be another one this January. And one of the topics of conversation is, what isn't helpful when you're sad or grieving or suffering? And most of us, I think, when we encounter someone who is grieving or sad, wish, of course, to offer comfort. We long to say something that will be helpful. And yet, and yet, despite our best intentions, sometimes we say all the wrong things. Sometimes we say the wrong things in an attempt to comfort someone. We might say something that makes them feel even more perplexed rather than loved. Job, Job at first had these friends, you heard it right, who come and arrive, and they get it right at first. Did you hear what Job's friends do? They come and sit with him. That's all they do, they sit with him. 
They weep with him. They don't say a word. In seminary, they call that a ministry of presence. But unfortunately, the story gets more complicated much later in the chapters. And there becomes a phrase, and it's a bit of a sarcastic one, and people become known as Job's comforters because Job's friends begin to try to explain to him why he has encountered such, such suffering. Maybe he did this, or maybe it's this. Maybe this happened. Maybe this is why God is punishing you. A Job's comforter is someone who, despite good intentions, says the wrong thing to someone in need. And I'm going to suggest to you that one of the less helpful things to say is what Job's friends later say to him. This pain, this challenge, this grief is God's test of you. You know, I have a friend who's never darkened the doors of a church after hearing a version of that after his brother died tragically. I mean, it can be incredibly painful if we believe that God is the cause of our suffering. I mean, the question would be, what kind of a God is that? So sometimes we might do more harm than good if we begin to describe God as, well, as some kind of a person who, as the narrator of Job did, who is cavalierly pulling levers and sending terrible things upon people or the world, or making a bet with Satan that Job will still love God. So how might we do better than Job's friends? I'm going to be rather bold here and say, how might we do better than the author of the book of Job? We might do better by offering the hope that is found in Jesus' vision, that God is not causing suffering, but that God is the spirit of perfect love. I mean, that's a vision echoed by a poet who once wrote, Till our grief is fled and gone, God doth sit with us and moan. You see, right? Job's friends got it right at first when they simply sat with Job and wept. It's later when they try to explain what happened that they begin to do harm. But a God who weeps with us when we weep, but yet does not cause pain or grief? I mean, I understand that that can be challenging for some of us. But think about it this way. My hunch is that most of us here would have no trouble with the idea that an earthquake or a flood is simply a natural occurrence, and when an earthquake comes, it is caused by, well, by the tectonic movement of the Earth's crust. An earthquake or a flood is not the act of a vengeful God. But too often, I think, with human sadness and tragedy, we try to explain it as God's will or a test. Maybe we do that because, I don't know, if there's anything our modern minds cannot seem to bear, it's the suspicion that no one is in charge. So in my mind, the first thing not to say to someone who is grieving is that this is God's will. The second thing not to say is that God never sends you more than you can handle. One of my favorite writers is Nancy Mares. She also happens to suffer from multiple sclerosis. 
And she writes that I can't tell you the number of times I've been told, sometimes, she said, even by strangers who've observed my disabled form, God never sends us more than we can handle. And she said, I know what they mean to say. They're trying to comfort me for what they assume, and she says, quite wrongly, to be a wretched fate. And the main reason, she adds, that I'm uncomfortable with that is that I don't believe that God sent my MS to me. She said, to believe in a God who does that, who punishes me or tests me, she said, is not to believe in a God of mercy who sent us Jesus, God's love with a face. I think Nancy Mayer's words free us from the sometimes profound guilt of asking, what did I do to deserve this? I know of a pastor who tells a story, he's a good friend of mine, of one of his parishioners who had his grandson in his car, and this was years ago before the days of seatbelt laws, and they got bumped at a stop sign. It wasn't a terrible accident. And the grandson wasn't badly hurt, but he did sort of smack his head on the, on the dashboard. And of course, he was a young child, and he began to cry unconsolably. And his five-year-old grandson said to him after he had caught his breath enough to speak, he said, well, what did I do wrong? I mean, really, that's it, isn't it? I mean, that's a question that as a person of faith should make us very sad. But that child's misplaced blame on himself I think is something many of us might share. And that's because we get through five or ten, maybe thirty years of believing in a universe that rewards good and right and punishes evil. Until one day, well, until one day, life slams on the brakes and we smack our head on the dashboard. And then we face a truth. You can do everything right and still get hurt. Goodness, we discover, is not a vaccine against pain. And we wonder, maybe we wonder, as the little boy did, what did I do to deserve this? A preacher writes that if life teaches us one core truth, our faith probably confirms it. And it's this, that Jesus, who was as good as good gets, still suffered. But Jesus suffered not only physical pain, but emotional, spiritual pain, betrayal, desertion. And yet, despite Jesus' life as, well, maybe as God's love made flesh and bone, in spite of everything he said and did, most of us still cling to our version of the truth. Namely, that if we are very good, nothing bad will happen. And then it does. Well, if it doesn't help to say God won't give us more than we can handle, or this is God's will, and if it isn't fair to blame ourselves asking what did I do to deserve this, what might help to face suffering or grief to deal with sadness? I think to begin the process of facing that, facing whatever life puts before us, is to ask the question, where will I find the inner strength in the midst of outer turmoil? 
It's often said that our prayers are not necessarily to be for a lighter load, but for the strength to face the loads we'll carry. So, where? Where in our faith might we find that strength? The dean of the chapel at Princeton Seminary once preached an astonishing sermon about his captivity as a prisoner of war during World War II. He said that when he and his fellow soldiers were newly captured, they were initially very religious. He said they would read their Bibles, they would pray, they would sing hymns from memory, and they would testify to one another about their faith. And they did so, he thinks now in retrospect, hoping and expecting that God would reward them for doing those things. Reward them for their good works, for their faith, by freeing them, or at least, he said, at least making their captivity a little easier. And Dean Gordon said, God did not deliver. And the soldiers became incredibly disillusioned and rather quickly gave up their outward displays of faith. However, after a while, what simply began to happen was this. The men began responding to the needs of their fellow prisoners. They cared for one another. They protected the ones who were weak or sick, and in a few cases, dying for one another. They began to discern, Dr. Gordon said this in retrospect, that there was some spirit in the midst of their travails. He said it was not, don't get me wrong, he said it was not a revival of faith in the conventional sense, but it was this. It was the discovery that faith was not necessarily what they believed, but faith was what they were doing for each other when it seemed they could do nothing at all. Faith eventually became what they could do for each other when, they assumed, when it seemed that they could do nothing at all. And he thinks, in retrospect again, what gave them the strength to face each day was the fact that they were compassionate for one another. The strength God gave to us, he preached, is available to anyone who's willing to care for their neighbor. For they are showing the spirit of Christ. I mean, is it possible? I mean, could it be that the inner strength for the outer challenges is not found simply in our capacity to endure, not found simply in our discipline of prayer, but that the strength is found in our capacity to care, to care for another person, even when we are in pain. I mean, in the end, isn't that Jesus' life? I mean, it's a witness, it's a testimony to the fact that compassion, compassion is superior to power. The strength that God gives to us to face the challenges and pain of life I think in the end, grows from a compassionate heart. And that strength is available to anyone who wishes to care for another. And may that strength of Christ come to each of us and to every one of our hearts when we need it in a time of sadness. This I pray for you and myself. Amen.